This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. begin with a a question. I I want you to think for a minute about who has influenced you in your faith. As you think back about your faith, who who has influenced you and nurtured you in your faith? Maybe the most. Take a moment and, and think about that. Was it a parent? Was it a friend? A spouse? A teacher? a coach, an author, a pastor. My wife, of course, has supported me in various ministry roles throughout our relationship, and I'm grateful for that, so grateful for that. I've learned from that. I've grown from that. I'm still learning how to be assertive. Just kidding. Um, Come on, that was a joke. Back to the other joke. Um, So over the years, though, coming up through my studies and coming up through the church, There have been a handful of teachers and and ministers and preachers and coaches in my life who have been influential in positive ways. And I I don't need to go through all those who've affected me negatively, right? Um, But there's David Hammond and Willie Alstock and Bill Clark and Matthew Williams and Rocky C and Kelly Rose and Linda Lawson and Jerry Sumney and Mike Rinkowicz and Ben Witherington and Fred Long, just to name a few. And I know that y'all don't know these folks. But part of my point in mentioning them is to help drive home the fact that these are real people. They're flawed. Every single one of those people is flawed. But they've been faithful to God's church. And they're people upon whose shoulders I stand. And the reality is we all, every single one of us in this room, stand on someone's shoulders or others' shoulders. And each of you can think of those people in your life whom you've heard the gospel from. Who you saw live it out. Who brought you to church maybe for the first time. Who shared Christ's love with you. It's not a point to be taken lightly um, that each and every one of us, we all stand on others' shoulders. We We indeed live on an island, but none of us is an island. And frankly, that is one of the most powerful and astounding things about the gospel. It didn't originate with us, but it is spread far and wide across the globe through us and even in spite of us. And somewhere uh, along the way, someone invited us to church. Someone brought us to church. Someone welcomed us in. And to to this day, sadly, uh, I'm the only Christian in my uh, non-immediate family. The only Christian. And when I was in elementary school, I I first heard about God from my uncle. And and sometime later, I started going to church with my best friend, whose dad was a pastor. It was hit and miss, though, because I only went on weekends where I was over his house. I didn't have a choice. Um, It was in high school 
when we moved down the street from this old Southern Baptist church that I was forced out of the house, literally forced out of the house on Wednesdays by my mom and told to go to church down the street. And it was there among those people that God began to move in my life in profound ways. It was there among those people that God was working in me like never before, that I was noticing things that I never had. And it was there that I both encountered God and I encountered screwed up church people. Amen. Amen. Being assertive, there you go. But you know, the, the former outweighed the latter. Right? Those encounters with God trumped, outweighed the screwed up church people. And it was a course charting, a life charting time for me in that old Southern Baptist church. And as I look back over my last 20 years, uh, even when I've been screwed over by church people, hurt by church people, burnt by church people, wounded by church people, I've always found my way back to the church. I've never left. The easy thing to do would have just been to leave. I've had enough. I'm done. I'm over it. Right? Real lives, real people have been hurt by the church. And many look at the church and they see that and they just don't get it. Why you keep going back? Why you keep going back then? And many people look at that and they beat up on Christ's bride. They reject her. They, they neglect her. And, 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 and some, they use her. When I was pastoring in Kentucky uh, on a weekly basis, literally on a weekly basis, since our little congregation was just off the main interstate, I'd get a knock on the door every single week, it seemed like, uh, somebody wanting a handout, somebody asking me for gas money, pulling off the interstate and asking me for gas money, just wanted us to give them money. And, you know, sometimes help is merited. Sometimes people really are in tough situations, and the church can help sometimes. Often, people are not really in tough situations, and they just use the church. People sadly and selfishly use the church. We've all heard stories, right, of, of people fighting over carpet, fighting over paint, fighting over types of seating, fighting over kinds of music and songs and virtually anything we can think of, people in the church fighting over it. On that note, by the way, I, I want to say that I'm pleased with y'all. Right? I'm pleased. With, I, I'm proud of y'all. I'm proud of the, the Bridge Church because, look, for the last few months, well, we've been arranging these seats in a bunch of different ways. Um, and, you know, we've moved everything around numerous times. And y'all have been flexible, right? And some churches can learn from that. Um, y'all just roll with it. And that's how it should be. Who cares how the seats are set up? That's how it should be, right? There are many congregations that just couldn't handle that. You turn the seats and people are going to lose their minds, Right? You, you, you sit in auntie or uncle's seat or pew on Sunday morning and you better get ready for the backlash, right? It's stupid. It's stupid. It's absurd. It's absurd. It's immature. And that kind of stuff, I ain't about it, right? I ain't got, ain't nobody got time for that, right? So we need, we need to keep in, in mind, um, what we need to keep in mind is that the, the church, you ever think, the church is Christ's significant other. Right, and, and so we have an abbreviation for significant other, SIGOT, right? SIG, OT, SIG, other, significant other, right? The, the, the church is Christ's SIGOT, 
Christ's significant other. And, and what's crazy is, that's us, right? That's us. Not me individually, or not you individually, but us collectively. Us. Us. We're Christ's sigas. Christ's significant other. Have you ever thought about that? That Christ calls us to care for us. Christ calls us to care for us. And we can't really care for us when we're caring about I or when we're, we're caring mostly about me and my feelings and what I want and what I think. And the reality is, look, we've all been hurt or frustrated with or by the church, every single one of us probably in this room. But the, all, the other reality is we would all also be worse off without the church. Every single one of us. There's a song by this band called Cochrane & Co. And probably many of y'all are familiar with it. It's titled Church. Or another title, an alternative title for it is called Take Me Back. And I want to share with you the first two verses of that song and the chorus. All right, so listen to this. Verse 1 says, There was a time that I swore I'd never go back. I was blind to the truth and I didn't know what I had. I was running, I was searching. But every place I turned for healing left me more broken than the last. The second verse says, tried to walk on my own, but I wound up lost. Now I'm making my way to the foot of the cross. It's not a trophy for the winners. It's a shelter for the sinners, and that's right where I belong. And the chorus says this, take me back to the place that feels like home, to the people I can depend on to the faith that's in my bones. Take me back to a preacher and a verse where they've seen me at my worst, to the love I had at first, I want to go to church. And many, you know, many of the so-called praise and worship songs, they, they really lack depth, right? They really do. But this one has some meat to its bones. It tells the truth. Church can hurt. But it also tells the greater truth that once this faith is in our bones, we have an innate desire to go to church, to be part of church, to be church. We have a desire to be in a place where we can open up, a place where people can see us in our crap and see us through our crap, right? And reiterate that we can depend on them. And this is where we belong. And amazingly, this song gets it right. This is our first love. And much of this, much of what we read here and much of what the song says, we find in our focal passage for the day, uh, which is Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And we're going to turn our attention to that now. And I want to remind you, um, by the way, that uh, the translations that you see up here on Sunday mornings are my translation straight from the Greek. Uh, and I attempt as faithfully as possible. To, to follow them. So if you're reading NIV or ESV, it's going to be a little different. But here's what Revelation 2, 1 to 7 says. For the angel of the church in Ephesus write these things. The one holding the seven stars in his right hand, that should sound familiar if you were here last Sunday or heard the sermon. Uh, the one holding the seven stars in his right hand, the one walking in the middle of the seven golden lampstands says, I know your deeds both your troubles and your perseverance, and that you're not able to exalt evils. You both tested those speaking of themselves as apostles and found them false. Also, you have perseverance, 
and you exalted my name and you've not been troubled by it. But I have against you this. Your first love you've left, or maybe a better word is you've neglected. Therefore, remember from where you fell and repent and do those first deeds. But if not, if not, I'll come to you and I'll move your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I myself also hate. The one having ears, let him hear. What does the Spirit say to the churches? To the one overcoming, I'll give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, right out of the gate, I need to talk about the first word here. The very first word. Many English translations render this as to the angel. So you can see that we have up here for. For the angel. Now, to the angel and for the angel makes kind of a big difference. And could be because to is suggesting that you're writing it and sending it to the angel, but for is you're writing it on behalf of the angel and sending it to the churches. Um, and I could go into some long grammar explanation about that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. But for, I think, is the right way to handle this. And it suggests that John is writing on behalf of the angel. Right? The angel. And it raises the question about who's the angel? Who's John writing on behalf of? And if you heard the first two sermons in this series on Revelation that I've given, you're going to maybe anticipate that uh, I'm talking about the word angel being the Holy Spirit. Right? So it's another descriptor for the Holy Spirit. And John, he's going to do this over and over and over. And even in the rest of the line, right? if you look at this, he says, the one holding the seven stars in his right hand, the one walking in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. And so there he gives two different titles to Jesus, right in the same line. And so he's got different sort of descriptors and titles and epithets for the Spirit and for Jesus. He's going to do this over and over and over. One of those words for the Spirit is the word angel. Um, and this is what, in keeping with what we saw in Revelation 1, uh, 1 through 2 and 119, right? A revelation of Jesus, the anointed one, which God gave to him to show to his servants what must occur with quickness. And he symbolized it. And after he sent it through his angel, the Holy Spirit, to his servant John, who testified about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, the anointed one whom he saw. And you can see down here, write therefore what you've seen, both the things which are and the things that will happen and the things after these things, right? So John... It's going to write to these seven churches. And at the very beginning of each of his address to these seven churches, he's going to say the same exact thing. The same exact, this is the way he begins uh, when we go back. For the angel of the church. He's going to say the same thing right out of the gate to all of them. And so the spirit, this ain't the word angel, right? It's not a celestial angel, but the spirit is revealing to John what Jesus gave to the spirit and what the father gave to Jesus. And what this does uh, is it, it, it creates this nice effect because right at the end of each uh, address to the seven churches, he's going to bring the Spirit right back into the picture. And so it creates this kind of bracketing effect. He starts the address with the Spirit and ends the address with the Spirit. And if we're talking in literary terms, it's called an inclusio. Everybody say that with me. Inclusio. Yes, it's this bracketing effect. You start a story and end the story the same way. That's called an inclusio. And so that's what John does when he writes to each of these churches. And so, there we go. Um, 
In Revelation 2, 1 to 7, we saw that uh, John writes for the Spirit what Jesus says and what the Spirit says. And in the short span of verses, a whole lot is said. And here are some questions that, that come up as we read that, right? Who were the Nicolaitans? John mentions them. Or Jesus mentions them. Uh, what was the first love? What is the tree of life? Where is the tree of life? How does one eat of the tree of life? Because it was said, I'll give to you to eat from the tree of life. What and where is the paradise of God? So these are just a few questions that, that come up here. So I want to zero in on some of these things so we can get a, a greater sense of what's being said. And what I want to point out first is that Jesus, when he speaks, right, he tells the Christians uh, in the congregation of Ephesus that they've neglected their first love. And a lot of people have wondered, is that God? Is that God the Father? Is that Jesus? Is Jesus the first love? Uh, some have suggested that he's talking about brotherly love. Um, and that last one is kind of close, but not exactly. And what is meant by first love here is the church. That's what he's talking about, the church, the first love. Jesus is charging the Ephesians with having previously loved the church, but along the way they've left it or neglected it. Right? And so that song I referenced moments ago makes a similar uh, claim. And a lot of commentators throughout church history point this out as well. You see, part of the neglect was spurred on by this group known as the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans, they may have been a clique that originated within the Ephesian congregation whose false teachings, perhaps uh, initiated by a guy named Nicholas of Antioch, who we read about in Acts 6-5, they were causing problems. And here, Jesus calls them to the floor for troubling the church and for attempting to pass themselves off as apostles in the church when they weren't. Likewise, when we keep reading in these next few addresses to the other churches, they're mentioned in the address to Pergamum, and they're mentioned also in the address to Thyatira. And concerning uh, in Pergamum, they're described as being associated with the Old Testament prophet Balaam. And as such, they're engaging in sexual immorality. They're eating meat sacrificed to idol gods. And these same uh, charges are leveled against those in Thyatira, those connected with Jezebel, uh, as she's called, and such deeds as having learned the deep things of Satan. We'll read about that in the next few weeks. The punishments mentioned for them are great. They include hardship, maybe the death of children, the Lord's vengeance. So it's really serious stuff. And Jesus views the threats of this, this clique within the church with the utmost seriousness, as should His servants. So that's the Nicolaitans. They're partially responsible for leading those in Ephesus to neglect the church. So more on them in the coming weeks. And we have this tree of life that's mentioned. Right? In the Old Testament, this tree of life obviously is connected to Eden. But in Revelation, the tree of life is connected to this cross, right? A tree, made of a tree, a cross conquering Jesus. He Himself is the tree of life. And when you read the Gospel of John, he's the vine and the branches and you get all that. Right? But he was hung on a tree and, and associated with that tree and now is called the tree of life. And so then we have this, this thing about the paradise of God. So along with the terms bride and first love and new Jerusalem, it's another term for church. That's all it is. 
The paradise of God is another term for church, which may be kind of mind-blowing to you because we tend to associate paradise with like the afterlife or whatever. And in Luke's gospel, I think it is, um, it may have that connotation, but in Revelation it doesn't. He's talking about the church. And I want to show you how I reached that conclusion. If we turn to Revelation chapter 22, it's the last chapter in Revelation. We read there, let's just read this, in the middle of it, so the, it's talking about a city, in the middle of the city street and on both sides of the river also, there was the tree of life, bearing 12 fruits according to each month, giving of its fruit, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, if you go back just one chapter in chapter 21, you read this. It's referring to the city. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, I saw coming down from the heavens from God, prepared as the adorned bride for her husband. Right? So follow me here. The bride is the same thing as the new Jerusalem. Right? The bride of Christ is the church. And the new Jerusalem is the church. I gave you the analogy uh, a couple months back when I was uh, touching on this, that if I were to say something like, all of Honolulu went crazy, right? You know that I'm not talking about the, the houses or the buildings or the streets. Or, you know that I'm talking about the people that comprise Honolulu. It's the same thing when we hear about New Jerusalem. It's not the physical city. It's the people that make up the church, right? So the terms bride and New Jerusalem, they're synonyms. And in the bride, in the new Jerusalem, in the church, we have this tree of life, Jesus. Right? He's in the middle of it. Does that make sense? Following me here. And really, all this is, is just another way uh, to say the same thing that we read in the first verse. Right? So we read there, the one holding the seven stars in his right hand, the one walking in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. What are the seven golden lampstands? The church. Who's in the middle of the seven golden lampstands? Jesus. So, to the one overcoming, I'll give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's the paradise of God? The church. And who's in the middle? The tree of life, or Jesus, right? So this is just a different way of saying the same exact thing. Right? This is what makes it challenging to read Revelation. Because a lot of times, John is talking about the same exact thing, but using different descriptions or different descriptors, right? So um, these, these, one of the other things that I want to point out actually before I move on to that is I want to say that um, we have this line about, I'll give to you to eat from the tree of life. Right? That's really interesting. So if the paradise of God is the church and the tree of life is Jesus in the center of the church, then what does it sound like if we say, I'll give to you to eat from Jesus in the church? What does that sound like? Anybody? Communion, the Lord's Supper, right? It's kind of referring to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So it's really, really fascinating how John does this. And so um, I, I talked about last week that when a church decenters Jesus, it loses access to the spirit that's at Jesus' right hand. And on a similar note, this week I want to say that a church that, that decenters Jesus forfeits communion with Jesus. A church that decenters Jesus partakes of an empty supper. They eat the meal alone, so to speak. Jesus isn't present. And so these Nicolaitans, they've crept in among the believers in Ephesus 
and they tried to spread false teachings. And while they didn't get a full foothold, they did bring about some neglect in some believers. And the reality is this, friends. The church is often scorned from without, looked down on from without, and attacked from without, but rotting, rotting, rottenness rotting occurs from within. People get in and they make it rot. They stink it up. They make it rot. They kill it. They choke it to death. They strangle it. They make it rot. Yeast creeps in and makes the church rot. The Ephesians called out these false apostles who had tried to stir things up from within. From outside, as Acts teaches, uh, as Acts teaches us, and as Paul notes in some of his works, the cult of Artemis was also very prominent in Ephesus. Artemis was a goddess. And it was also a really huge problem. And it affected some of the believers there. Paul underwent torture in Ephesus for preaching against the cult of Artemis. And so the church there in Ephesus had to guard itself from attacks from without and from rot from within. There are many ways to rot from within. You know that, right? A lot of ways for a church to rot from within. I want to consider a few with you this morning. Talking crap about each other. Church rot. It causes church rot. It's one of the first. It's maybe the easiest. I want to reiterate this morning that if you have something to say about someone, don't say it about them. Say it to them. That's the Christian way. If you have some concern or beef with me, for example, don't talk crap about me behind my back. Come to me. Come to me. I'm open. I'll hear it. I'll hear you out. Got something to say? Come to me. When someone in the bridge comes to you, if someone comes to you, and they start talking crap about another person, asking questions about another person, don't entertain it. Don't. Don't entertain it. Right? Turn to them and say, friend, brother, sister, whatever you want to say, you got to go talk to that person. Right? This should be part of our DNA. And it blocks that decay. It blocks the, the rot. We can easily protect the bridge from church rot just by adhering to this single principle. It's simple. It's effective. Do it. At the moment that you start gossiping, uh, you, you should lose all credibility. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to set the standard this morning, if it hasn't already been set, but I'm going to set the standard that if someone comes to you and they're talking crap about somebody else in the bridge, they lose all credibility in your eyes. Period. Right? They lose credibility. Because what they're doing is damaging the church by hurting a brother or sister in Christ. So don't even entertain it, folks. Don't. We can protect church rot by not being selfish. We're all selfish to some degree. We all have self-interests to some degree. Some of us like to try to flex that in the church. The moment you do that and I see that, I lose respect for you. You want to flex, I'm going to lose respect. And everyone else, that should be the standard as well. right? You didn't get the style of sermon you wanted? Get over it. I don't care. Right? You didn't get the snacks you wanted on Sunday morning? 
move on. Didn't like the songs, didn't like the music, no worries. Guess what? Worship isn't about you anyway. Didn't get the seat you wanted or desired, who cares? Right? Didn't get to, to do the event that you had asked for and hoped for, maybe next time. Right? Didn't get your way, say la vie. That's life. Right? Putting off selfishness prevents church rot. Putting off selfishness prevents church rot. And another way to, to stop church rot is to accept church discipline. And I know that sounds crazy, right? It sounds crazy. Church discipline? Really? Really? Yes, really. Really. Because there's a board here. There's a church board in the bridge. And there's a code that we're trying to live by. We have church policies. We have a church manual. Our denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, has policies. And we should submit to such things. I was telling you all last week that um, I had an interview coming up. So yesterday I met with the district board. I'm trying to transfer my credentials uh, to be ordained for the Nazarene Church or to be recognized as ordained in the Nazarene Church. By the way, I got the message last night that they, they passed me with flying colors. So that was good news. Um, but... You know, part of that, part of that is me sitting in a room with a district board and telling them, I agree, I submit. I submit. I submit to our policies, right? And here's, here's what I'm getting at. This isn't an anything goes type of atmosphere. It isn't. It's a, our word of the week. This is a word I made up, a word I coined this week. Um, ecclesioformity. I really like it. Um, and here's what I mean by ecclesioformity, right? Um, this, this, the first part of this word, ecclesio, right, comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the word we just use for church today. And it's the way we often translate church. So ecclesioformity, fun word, I think. The act of allowing one's life to be formed by, in, with, under, under, and for Christ church. And for Christ's church. Right? That under is really important. We're talking about some submission here. Recognizing some authority. Recognizing some policies. So if you're out there this morning and that's convicting you, good. It should. Right? So we, we, we need to let this church affect every area of our lives. We, can sh we should consider how what we're doing and saying and thinking is affecting the bride, the body of Christ, his sigat, the new Jerusalem, the church. And so how, how have you let the church work in you? How have you let the church affect your life in such ways? This morning I want to share with you that the bridge is on the, the brink of revealing a three-year vision plan. Now, to be clear, this isn't my vision. It isn't mine. I didn't make it up. I didn't come along with it and try to enforce it. I guided our board through a process, and out of that, the vision collectively and organically sprang up from them. Now, I've been here half a year now. Kind of crazy. Six months. Can you believe that? Half a year. And, and since I've been here, that, that's been a large part of what I've been working on, right? 
And, and that's been a large part of what they've been working on, try, trying to help guide them through this process. And they've successfully moved through this process. And as I watched this vision sort of organically bubble up out of them, not only was I surprised, I was encouraged, very encouraged. And so in a month, about on February 9th, we're going to roll that out for everybody and, and share it with you. Um, but you know, if, if everyone... If everyone else beyond me and the board can't get in on this vision, it ain't going to go. It ain't going to go. So if, if some folks are wanting to choose selfishness because they didn't get to do what they want or didn't get to do whatever and opt for church rot instead, that's what's going to happen. right? I'll fight you on that. The board will fight you on it. Uh, we're going to resist it. right? But we want this to go. We want it to go. We, we, we think this is going to be a good thing. And if, if folks get all in, I think there's going to be a lot of wonderful opportunities ahead. And so hear me when I say this. Only, only an ecclesioform posture will create the space for this to happen. A life willingly shaped by, in, with, under, and for Christ's church. You know what? That may ask more of you than usual. It may require more of you. Let it. Let it. It may, it may bring more meaning to your life. Let it. It may bring more value to our community. Let it. All of that, I think, will please God. I believe that. And so, you know, you've heard me say this before. And I'm cluing you into the fact that going forward, you're going to hear me say it a lot. You're going to continue hearing me say it. But your image of God is the most important thing about you. Or stated another way, what you think about God or what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Not your job. Not your name. Not your credentials. Not your family, not your family name, not your family ties, not your location, none of it. Nope. None of that. The single most important thing about you is what you think about God. Because you know what? If I ask you, what's the predominant image of God that you have? Right? When you give me an answer, I can tell way more about you than you realize. And so as I've said before, a big part of what I long to do is to help us to have healthy images of God. When we started this series on Revelation, and by the way, there's no S on the end of Revelation. It's not Revelations. There's just one Revelation. It's got a bunch of visions in it, but it's just Revelation. Um, and, and so when we started this series on Revelation um, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we got an image of God as this God who has our back. And last week's image of God was this God who desires to be center. And, and today what, what I want to leave us with is this image, this healthy image of God as groom. Right? We're bride, God is groom. And when we obey the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit do a sanctifying work in us and remove our blemishes and bring about our healing, we become the bride. 
the sigoth, the significant other that Christ desires. We become this beautiful, unspotted bride. And so I have this image of Christ as a groom standing there, looking at His bride, the church, as she comes forward toward Him. And He's got this beloved gaze, this longing stare. And when He sees His bride approaching in white, pure, beautiful, this divine groom begins to weep. Not a weeping like in Gethsemane, but this joyous weeping, a proud weeping. I'm so fortunate, right? That kind of weeping. Looking at us weeping happily. Weeping with joy. Because at that moment, we are everything that He wants. We are everything that He's desired. Us, we. Think about that. So earlier, I shared with you the first two verses of that, that song, Church. Take me back. And I want to share the third verse here. Here's what it says. More than an obligation, it's our foundation. The family of God. I know it's hard, but we need each other. We're sisters and brothers. And so, as we head into this week as the bride of Christ, let's be reminded of that. That church is our foundation. We need each other. We're sisters and brothers, amen? Amen.